Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey, uh, hello. Is this thing on? Uh, wow. Welcome back, you beautiful and rocking humans, to the Strangeology podcast. It has been a minute, and thank you for coming back to listen to the show today. Thank you for being so patient while I've been on hiatus, and uh, this is the first episode of my second season, and I've got a lot of big topics that I want to cover this season, and a lot of awesome people I want to talk to uh, that I'm coordinating with to come on to the show uh, to talk about all sorts of 40 and subject matter and high strangest and all that good stuff that we love. So yeah, it's um it's been a while and uh I gotta apologize real quick for my voice sounding a little bit rough. I'm a little stuffy. Uh, my family came down with a really gnarly head cold the other week uh, that just kind of lingered and lingered and uh we're doing better. Uh wasn't anything serious thank thankfully, but, um, I, I really had to take a break, uh, at the end of, uh, the last season from writing episodes and, and doing research and all that, uh, while I got my merch, uh, displays and, and set up all set for CryptidCon. Um, it was a lot of just making shirts and getting signage done. And if you follow my social media, I'm sure you <laughs> were inundated with uh, videos of me pressing shirts with my heat press and <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, and even after CryptidCon was over, uh, my schedule has just been balls to the walls. <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I've also been uh, working a, a job recently, and that's been taking up a lot of my free time as well. Uh, but we're here. We're here for the podcast and and we're going to have fun. Um, I really wanted to get back into it sooner, but, it, you know, it's it's this time of the year also gets tricky with the holidays and and finding time uh, beyond everything else to to write and research. It gets tricky. So uh, thank you again for for being patient and, and bearing with me uh, through this very busy and hectic time. But speaking of CryptidCon, uh, I got to give my my recap for it still. And I know at this point, CryptidCon was over a month ago, <laughs> so I'm super late to the game. But uh, the memories are still fresh in my mind enough. And uh, I, I got to give my two cents. So if you don't want to listen to me gush about this event and how awesome it was, uh, and you'd rather get right to today's episode, skip ahead like 15 or 20 minutes, maybe a little bit more, but 15 to 20 is probably about as much as I'll take here. Um, so yeah, let's just, uh, get into it. So after, you know, making the 12 hour drive in one day that I did, uh, there and back, 
to the Moth Boys Cryptid Bash uh, driving from New England to West Virginia, uh, I decided that the 15-hour drive to Lexington, Kentucky would probably kill me. Uh, I'm getting too old for uh, doing these kind of (laughs) nonstop jaunts. And let's be honest, that's 15 hours without stopping for food or uh, taking a pit stop. So add on an extra, you know, one, two, three hours on there. Uh, So instead, I made the trip in two days and for about three weeks straight leading up to this, I was up late all night pressing all of these shirts so I'd have something to sell at the show. Um, and it was really a, a super fun process. The The quality of these shirts were great. And I hope, um, you know, if 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 you're listening to the show and you went to CryptidCon and, and you picked up a shirt or, or any merch of mine, uh, thank you so much for doing so. And uh, I hope you really dig your shirts and uh, all your other merch that you you grabbed from uh, everyone that was vending at the show and, uh, you know, having this heat press and being able to have some really awesome DIY merch was, was made possible by everyone who has supported strangeology over the past, gosh, year and a half, uh, at this point. Um, so thank you all. And, you know, back to it, I I wound up packing up my car with all this merch and table display stuff and my car, I drive, I drive a Subaru. So it was, it was packed and there's, you know, a lot of cargo space, but I couldn't even see out of the back of the car. And, uh, I, I'm definitely grateful that I was able to fit it all. It was just like barely enough space to get everything in there. So the first day of the trip was pretty uneventful, uh, spent through driving through Vermont and, uh, New York on the I-90. The weather was okay the whole time. And, you know, I was just jamming out to music, listening to podcasts. And because I hadn't had a chance to really catch up on all my friends' podcasts, you know, it's <laughs> uh, what better time to do it. So the closer I got to Western New York, the weather started to turn into a little bit of rain. And I would go through these like periodic cells of little uh, rainstorms. And it was funny once I actually crossed into Pennsylvania and that's where I was kind of my final destination for that day uh, was Erie, Pennsylvania. The weather turned into this uh, almost whiteout snow squall. (laughs) And uh, I'm no stranger to like driving into uh, those kind of conditions, uh, being from New England and uh, I was okay driving in it. You know, I've got the all wheel drive vehicle. I had studded snow tires, but it definitely slowed things down quite a bit. So the last like leg of the trip, which is really dragged because I was trying to drive cautiously. Um, So I I finally, uh, I made it to my Airbnb in Erie and I got set up for the night and it was funny. I was so busy making shirts and packing for the trip that I didn't have time to press more of these uh, one inch buttons, which I made a whole bunch of for Cryptid Bash and I was almost out of them. So I had to make more. Uh, I sold a whole bunch at 40 and Fest as well uh, in Maine, which was also a super fun event. 
So I wound up bringing my Tecra one inch button press and all of my button parts. And uh, I stayed up until 1 a.m. pressing buttons. And uh, of course, <laughs> with my luck, I opened up the trunk to my car and one of the uh, the button part buckets that I had this like little plastic pin just fell out and spilled all over the driveway of the the place I was staying at so I had to spend like 10 minutes cleaning that up but thankfully I was able to have some entertainment and checked out uh, Small Town Monsters uh, new documentary The Discovery uh, so I was up to like 1am watching that and pressing buttons <laughs> now day two was pretty much spent driving through Ohio, which is, uh, it was mostly uneventful and very flat compared to what I'm used to. And, uh, there was some traffic, uh, like around Columbus and, uh, and Cincinnati, but I decided to take a quick detour and I visited, uh, Riverside Avenue in Loveland, Ohio, which is where the infamous Loveland Frogman was seen uh, by some police officers back in the 70s. And then there was the the original encounter in the 50s, but I'm not sure if it was on Riverside Avenue or a different area. Uh, the lore isn't 100% clear on that from what I've read. Uh, perhaps somebody knows a little bit more details there, but um, yeah, that was the one where uh, there were the three frogmen and one was holding up a wand over its head that was like shooting sparks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Riverside Ave, it's basically this this uh, two lane road on the side of a river, the, the little Miami. And there's a guardrail on one side, which the the frogman allegedly jumped over during the the encounters in the uh, the 1970s and the other side of the road is this kind of like occasional warehouse type uh building all like there were several businesses like dotted along this road and it's like a mile stretch of road uh <clears throat> and there was like a house or two and really no place to park your car if you want to go and investigate and check things out. Uh, I did find one pull off and I tried to go across the street and go into the woods near the river. And it was kind of a busy road, so it was a little bit sketchy. But um, once you get over the guardrail and into the, the thicket, <laughs> it's pretty much like a 10 foot drop off down below into the river. So I figured that probably wouldn't be fun to, uh, you know, <laughs> not only, uh, be cold hanging out there since it was freezing outside, uh, but also to <laughs> get wet in case I fell into the river and not sure how to get out. So, um, it turned out there was a little dog park type area at the, the beginning of, uh, Riverside Ave. And, uh, I went over there to hang out and there was kind of like a short little Riverside path that dead ended into some thick brush. But I went down there and I spent a few minutes, uh, on Instagram live and just kind of talked about the Loveland Frogman and, and just kind of took it all in. Um, it was, uh, an interesting experience, pretty, you know, uneventful, but, uh, it, it was 
cool to actually like go to an area where some something was su- supposed to have happened uh and there was potentially uh a cryptid or or several cryptids seen in this particular area over the years and it it seems like loveland doesn't have much stuff embracing the frogman legend which is kind of unfortunate i didn't really get a chance to explore the town itself too much uh, since I had to get back on the road. But if there's anyone that lives around that area, someone needs to uh, make a museum or or something there. Uh, I think that would probably be pretty good for the town. But anyway, I got back on the road and made it to my hotel in Lexington uh, a couple hours later. Uh, And I checked in, and then after that, I headed straight to uh, the Clarion Conference Center, which is about 10 minutes uh, up the road from where the hotel I was staying at. I tried to get a room at the Clarion, but I waited too long, uh, typical me, and I couldn't get a room there. So I I decided to go because vendors were allowed to uh, take a few hours that evening to work on setting up their tables. And I'm glad I did because uh, CryptidCon started at like 9 a.m. on Saturday. And I wasn't about to wake my ass up at six to go set up after driving all day on uh, Friday and also driving all day the day before. Um, And yeah, and then into the morning, I still had to do a few things um, once I got there. So as for CryptidCon, oh man, what a blur. I was set up right next to the Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls and huge, huge shout out to Sarah, Kenzie and Heather for helping me out when I needed to step away for a break. Uh, that was so crucial <laughs> since I was uh, I was flying solo. Uh for for the show but um yeah i was supposed to have help but plans changed uh of course uh one of my buddies was i was hoping was going to be able to make it but he wound up uh not being able to come but it it all worked out uh matt and mike from moth boys and danner from conjure dust designs were also across the the aisle uh from us jonathan dodd was a few tables down in the corner And we were in the paddock room, which was kind of like this big gymnasium type place uh, that was down this super ridiculously long hallway. Uh, And it was, you know, it was set back from the rest of the main conference. I think there was there was a ballroom and then there was two other rooms for vendors. The ballroom was was where there were um, speakers and and all that, all the, the big name people. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a weird setup, but it was, um, you know, it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, who else was in the room? It was, uh, Easton Hawk was on the other side of the room. Um, Max from Maximus prime art was in one of the center aisles. Uh, Lisa from cryptid comforts was in there as well. Um, Ben and Andy from the Hodag store, uh, who I met were just killing it. They had an amazing display and, uh, the Hodag costume was a hit, uh, and they were having a lot of fun and it was just this big solid crew of people. Um, some of whom I'd met 
in person at Cryptid Bash, of course, um, and, you know, some who I hadn't met yet. And it was really awesome. Uh, Aaron and Sarah from Hey Strangeness were there as well, uh, just attending, uh, as well as Carter and Timmy from Mysteries Obscure. Really awesome to meet you guys. Uh, Jesse and Joe from Hellbent Holler were also hanging out. And big thanks to them for uh, <laughs> throwing me one of their awesome new shirts. Uh, that was really nice of you. So yeah, so many people were there. It was just this total blur of an event. And I wish it was like another like day or two <laughs> just so you could hang out a little bit more. And yeah, it's, it was so wild. Um, there were like 60 vendors total. And, uh, I think the f final count um, I think there was like 1400 or so people that attended the event, uh, over the weekend, which is, that's a lot of people <laughs> for sure. Um, oh, MetaZoo games. They had this awesome, huge presence there, which is really cool. Um, several of their, um, employees and, and, and people would come around, uh, to all the different vendors tables and hand out some cards. Um, got to chat with a couple of those folks and, um, yeah, it was just so overwhelming and, and spread out. <laughs> it, and I remember like the last day I was just scrambling around to try to get a few <laughs> souvenirs for friends and family and, and stuff for myself. <laughs> it's kind of funny just trying to get around to everything. Um, oh yeah, I just remembered, uh, the mountain monsters crew was in the paddock room. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Um, you know, probably to draw people in, uh, they were, you know, <laughs> they were rowdy and loud. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Kenny Irish was also in the paddock room as well. And I got to talk to him for a little bit and it's funny. He's actually from my neck of the woods and, uh, used to play in some hardcore and punk bands back in the day, uh, that I knew about. And, um, he comes from like the, a little bit, uh, earlier era, era about like a decade before I started like playing music and getting into the scene where I'm from. Uh, so we connected on that a bit, which was fun. Uh, I got to chat with, uh, Cliff Barrickman from finding Bigfoot in the North American Bigfoot center for a hot minute. Um, also got to meet Melissa Barrickman as well. And, uh, yeah, Saturday night after, uh, the vendor tables closed down, um, myself and, and a few friends and, and several other, um, podcasters get asked to join in on this, this panel, um, in the ballroom, which was uh, pretty interesting. Um, you know, room for improvement for sure. It was the first year they were doing the, they were doing it. Um, but I'm sure as the years go on, it's going to get a lot more smooth and, and, uh, much more, uh, organized, I guess. Uh, but you know, it, it was, it was super fun. Um, I got to speak a few times, you know, introducing myself and, and talking about my favorite episodes that I've done so far. Uh, so yeah, I'm hoping in the future, uh, to do it again, probably, uh, next year, hopefully if they, they ask me to, to 
hop on the panel again. I, I'd love to add add some more perspective. Uh, there was a lot of us too, and I think they only had like 45 minutes or so. Uh, so it was really kind of like <laughs> you only had like 20, 30 seconds to talk, and then it was like, okay, we got to pass the mic on to someone else and then keep the, keep the thing rolling. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of details here, but I think that um, one of my favorite parts of CryptidCon was probably Aaron from Hey Strangeness dressing up as the Krampus, which uh, it was actually a costume provided by uh, Sarah from Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls slash the American Snallygaster Museum. And uh, it was super fun. And also big shout out to Aaron, who also helped uh, watch my table on Sunday while I was out scrambling around uh, buying stuff uh, for my friends and family at home. Uh, But yeah, I should probably get to the episode uh, because this is turning into one of its own. (laughs) But anyway, uh, big thanks to Lee, Jennifer and Jeff for organizing CryptidCon and all the wonderful people who came out and supported all the vendors, any friends who helped me out and uh, just the rad crew of uh, the the chosen cryptid family (laughs) members that that keep growing and uh, it was an amazing time and I can't wait for the next one. Uh, and just one more thing before I actually get into the episode. Um, can't, can't not talk about this. Uh, on my trip back home, I decided to take a little bit of a detour, uh, to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And, uh, I, it was only like two and a half, three hours from Lexington and technically it wasn't really out of the way. So I was like, I got to you swing wide coming out of Kentucky <laughs> and getting back to uh, New England. Uh, so, you know, it's a, a pilgrimage. You got to do it. Uh, so I get to Point Pleasant and it's it's really just like any other small town. Uh, if you if you didn't have any idea about the Mothman and John Keel and Gray Barker and everything that that happened there back in the late 60s, you really wouldn't have any idea that there's something special about this town. And <clears throat> unless you're you're driving down the main drag <laughs> and you see this funny looking metal statue with <laughs> this super <laughs> super toned butt <laughs> down a side street, uh, you know, you don't know what's going on in this town um but it's if you do and and uh you see that statue you know you've made it and if you follow me on instagram yes i did touch the mothman statues shiny metal ass like so many of you probably have uh and it was a bit of a surreal experience other people were coming up to uh the statue and taking pictures uh, and it wasn't even like really like a busy day. It was just like people would wander in and I'm sure it happens like all day, every day. And the Mothman Museum is literally right next to the statue and you, you can't not go into the museum if you're in Point Pleasant. So I went in and, and checked everything out in there, which was super rad. I picked up a few souvenirs and and uh, headed up to the McClintic Wildlife Management Area or as you know, the TNT area, um, which is where 
the most well-known and one of the earliest encounters with Mothman took place uh, with the Scarberries and the Mallets. And uh, I drove in there and I wanted to check out some of the old munitions bunkers, but I learned that the TNT area or the McClintic Wildlife Management area in late November is a prime spot for hunters. <laughs> and uh, when I got in there, I started seeing all these pickup trucks parked on the side of the road and on these pull-offs that uh, I believe some of them go down to the old bunkers and a lot of them were kind of washed out and overgrown. And I could see guys with their orange vests on and their rifles walking in the woods to go hunt. And it's like, gosh, I got there around like two o'clock or something like that. Seems a little late to start going hunting, but you know, <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Um, so I decided it was probably not a great idea to get out of my car and go wander in the woods. I kind of drove around for a little bit, uh, noticed like flooded old pathways, uh, but the road was just not really well maintained. It was super ruddy. And I just kind of like hung out in my car for a few minutes and, and took it all in. And then I decided I should probably go uh, and, and, uh, resume the journey back home. Uh, so if, if Mothman Fest happens in 2022, uh, which fingers crossed, hopefully it does, uh, this past two years have, have been completely wild and unpredictable. Um, I do plan to go next year and, uh, hopefully the, uh, the cryptid gang, uh, and I can head up and uh, do a proper tour of the TNT area since uh, a few people in the crew are much more familiar with the area and know where all the key spots are. So fingers crossed, everyone. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I hope that uh, I all I didn't just bore the crap out of all of you. <laughs> I know that this was uh, a little late to the game as far as Cryptid Con reviews go, but uh, the rest of November and Early December just got stupidly busy, and uh, now I'm back. And if you didn't guess by now, um, the topic for today's episode is going to be about Britain's Roswell, the Rendlesham Forest Incident. So let's just jump into it. must have been in middle school or early in high school the first time I heard of this case, and I'm sure that some of you are familiar with it. This was one of those cases that always just kind of struck me and stayed with me. With the amount of details in the story, uh, the credible eyewitnesses involved, uh, along with the, the documentation and the audio recordings and accounts of some serious high strangeness, uh, along with, uh, you know, the skepticism, uh, the plenty of skepticism, uh, as well as uh, debunking as well. Uh, this tale has always fascinated me. And uh, with the anniversary of this event, um, happening uh, just around the release of this episode, I, I figured that it would be really fun to do a deep dive into into this story um, for 
the season premiere. And uh, I hope you guys dig it. It's going to be fun. So just what was the Rendlesham Forest incident? What happened at the twin airbases RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk County, England in 1980? And why is this event called Britain's Roswell? If you've ever watched any kind of UFO series on TV, there's a high chance that there's going to be an episode on this case and bare minimum just referencing this case. And, uh, you know, Nick Pope will be on there being interviewed about it uh, with his research into into the event at his time with the, the Ministry of Defense. And uh, it's it's called Britain's Roswell because it's one of the most documented modern ufo sightings in history not only in great britain but for the entire world really um and it's full of seemingly highly credentialed and credible military witnesses who who were there uh and i want to start by going over the events leading up to this incident um and then get into the nitty-gritty details of the event itself. As it turns out, this event wasn't the only UFO-related happening in England around this time. And there were a number of strange happenings in the sky in this part of the world back then. About a week and a half earlier, on December 15th, 1980, around 4 p.m., the ufologist and author Timothy Good had witnessed a, uh, quote, aerial display, unquote, while walking to his flat in London. At first, he noticed a bright stationary star in the sky, uh, but he, he just wrote it off as being the planet Venus, which is so often a uh, something that's mis misidentified as a UFO, but Good realized this light was not actually Venus as it was far too bright to be a star. And he then thought that this mystery light could be a plane or a balloon reflecting the light from the setting sun. He then rushed home and manned his telescope that he had to see if he could get a better look at the object, but by the time that he got home and got set up, it had all but disappeared. It was a fleeting thing. The next day, however, Good received a call from a reporter from the Kentish Times, a man by the name of Russell Bowie, who inquired if Good had seen anything weird in the skies around 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon the previous day. And this reporter then let on that there was apparently a mass sighting over at the Orpington Hospital where over 40 people observed a UFO in the sky uh, near the hospital for over an hour. And this object was seen hovering all this time <laughs> and then it just took off at impossible speed. Uh, and then later on, one of the witnesses from the mass sighting, a man named Peter McSherry, 
who was an employee of the uh, Lovell Southern LTD, spoke with Timothy Good and uh, check out these details that he relayed to him. He claims that he first saw the object around 3 p.m. and he estimated that it was hovering perfectly still around 50,000 feet uh, based on witnessing a plane passing underneath this object. And if that plane was at cruising altitude, that's what, like 30 to 35,000 feet. Um, and whatever this object was, was several thousand feet higher in altitude. Now, McSherry also noted that the object would slowly and methodically move eastwards. And each time it would release some kind of puff of like vapor or gas, uh, which really reminds me if anyone out there has seen this video, there's this video that's shot in infrared. It's uh, from the Chilean Navy. And if you haven't seen it, you can find it on YouTube. But basically, there's this mystery blob, this object in the sky. And it's in black and white since it's an IR. Uh, but you see it start emitting what looks like some kind of hot gaseous material from it. Uh, I believe it shows up as uh black on on the video meaning that it, it's hot whatever it is. Uh and it's really bizarre. And this thing just kind of is moving along really slow and this substance something is just coming out of it. It's it's you got to check it out. But anyway, uh, McSherry also noted that this thing would also periodically turn on its own axis, which also reminds me of uh, the infamous Tic Tac video. Uh, yet this was almost 40 years prior to that video even being publicly declassified and released. And it's pretty wild to see some of the similarities that keep showing up with different events like these uh, and sightings, despite the distance and time. And at the end of it, McSherry said just after 4 p.m., it moved quickly back to its original location that he saw it in. And about 4.15, the object pointed what he described as its nose upwards towards space. And then split into two objects and shot toward the moon at incredible speed. And this also reminds me a lot of Bob Lazar uh, explaining how the sports model worked. And, you know, say what you will about uh, Bob Lazar. I know there's a lot of people that think he is a charlatan and, uh, you know, that he's made this whole thing up for decades upon decades. But it is interesting to note uh, that one of the the aspects that he described with the, the sports model UFO was when it was when it was in motion and just hovering, it would be kind of like wobbly. But if it was going to go somewhere, it would tilt on its axis and kind of point like the 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 roof of the craft 
uh, towards wherever it was going and then it would take off. So that's a really interesting um, detail that is consistent with a lot of sightings like these. Uh, and this wasn't the the only UFO incident around late 1980 in England either. Sometime around late October, early November at RAF Neatstead, there was an incident involving two F-4 Phantom jets that were performing nighttime flight exercises when suddenly an unidentified third craft appeared on their radar in their vicinity. Now, according to radar operator Malcolm Skura, it first appeared at 5,000 feet and then began jumping up to 90,000 feet in mere moments before vanishing completely from radar screens. The pilots in the F-4 Phantoms were then ordered to stop their exercise and go investigate this mystery craft. Skura alleged that one of the fighter pilots said they approached a very bright light and then this light zipped directly up and vanished in just like a second. The following day, Skura claimed that several high-ranking military officers had arrived at RAF Neatstead and confiscated all the radar tapes, all the logs, and any evidence from the previous night that might have contained any kind of evidence that something pertaining to this UFO encounter happened, uh, whether or not it's connected to the sighting over London or over Rendlesham isn't clear, but it is curious that there were other unexplained sightings of mystery objects already occurring at this time. And I'll, I'll also say again that it's, it's curious that there's some details here that are also very similar to recent Navy reports of ships that are off the West Coast of America and they're seeing all these UFOs and all that there's all this activity and they're dropping in from the upper atmosphere at these crazy speeds and then like shooting up and coming back down. So it's, it's super interesting to, to learn that there were events like this being reported, uh, allegedly at least, uh, back in 1980 and who knows, probably even earlier earlier than that. So let's jump into the main event. Uh, Rendlesham Forest is, uh, it's almost a six square mile forest and it's located in Suffolk County, England, right off the East Coast, uh, with the closest city being Ipswich uh, to the southwestish of it. <laughs> This forest used to be flanked by the Joint Air Force bases uh, run by the United States Air Force, uh, which are the, the now decommissioned RAF Bentwaters uh, on the northern edge of the forest and RAF Woodbridge on the western side of the forest. Now, it's just after Christmas, 1980, just after midnight on December 26th, Two American servicemen, John Burroughs, and he was 
an airman first class and Jim Penniston, who was a staff sergeant, were on patrol duty at RAF Woodbridge and they were having a pretty uneventful evening until they noticed a kind of strange light in the sky over the forest near the bases. And the two suspected that uh, it could have been a crash or it could have been a landing happening, perhaps a helicopter performing an emergency landing of sorts. And that it didn't really look like a crash, but it looked like an aircraft that could potentially be in trouble. So they radioed their superiors and got uh, permission from Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler to go check things out. Now, Penniston and Burroughs, along with another serviceman, uh, Airman First Class Ed Cabinsag, piled into one of the base's jeeps and drove off into the forest to locate the source of the odd light. Eventually, the forest became too dense and drivable ground became non-existent. So they wound up having to park their Jeep. Now, shortly after, Sergeant Chandler arrived on the scene as well. And that's when things started to get interesting. Within moments, the four men noticed that their radios began to strangely malfunction intermittently or it seemed like something was interfering with them. Uh, despite this, though, Burroughs, Penniston, and Cabin Sag cautiously advanced further into the forest on foot while Chandler stayed behind with the vehicles and to also maintain radio contact with the base just in, just in case. And the closer that... Burroughs, Penniston, and Cabin Sag got to the source of the lights, it became harder and harder to make contact with Chandler. So So Cabin Sag stopped advancing, but Burroughs and Penniston pressed ahead. Now, the two remaining men who were moving forward were faced with something they did not expect to see. The air around them as they approached this light started to become charged with static electricity. The hair on their arms and, and necks stood up and it felt like they were wading through water trying to get closer to the source of light. Now, they then made it to this small illuminated clearing in the forest and as they approached further in towards this source of light this large kind of it was described as an explosion of light that happened this silent explosion and it caused them to hit the deck expecting to be hit with debris like they thought th they thought something exploded but it wasn't an explosion uh at all Penniston then got up when he realized there was no immediate danger, and uh, that's when he and Burroughs finally saw the craft that was the source of light. And 
what they witnessed was this strange glowing object in this forest clearing that was metallic in appearance and triangular in shape. Uh, surely nothing that they recognized. It certainly didn't look like any of the the aircraft that was on either base where they were. It was about two meters high and two to three meters across. And the light from this object illuminated the forest around it. Uh, and on the top of the craft, it was said that there was a pulsating bank of red lights on it. And on the other side, there was a bank of blue lights. And interestingly, the closer they got to the object, the more they realized that it was just interfering with everything. Their radios were just not really working anymore. And at that point, Captain Sag was ordered by Penniston to return back to the Jeeps with uh, Master Sergeant Chandler. And Penniston and Burroughs then got within 50 meters of this object. And at that point, you know, they probably realized that they're dealing with something pretty strange. Now, Burroughs became overwhelmed with the situation and apparently wasn't quite sure how to process what they were seeing. But Penniston, on the other hand, was totally there for it. <laughs> uh, he moved closer to the object and noted that, you know, his hair on his neck was standing up and the air was just thick with this like static energy. And when he got within 20 meters of the object, he could make out more details. And he described that the surface on this object looked smooth and shiny. Uh, it was also black and had this kind of glassy appearance to it. And the red and blue lights on it continued to flash uh, alternately. And there was also this stable white light that emerged from the top and bottom as well. And there was a little bit of uh, a yellow glow too. Now, Penniston had brought a camera along and pulled it out and began to take pictures of the craft and got so close that he was only just a few feet away from it. And he noted that the object was very smooth, had no seams, no rivets, no imperfections in it that he could discern. And it seemed to be fashioned by one piece of material, which is uh, it's a detail echoed in many UFO reports and uh, kind of sounds like a, like an advanced form of 3D printing or, or something, you know. And Penniston also said that he couldn't see any signs of visible propulsion on this object. And then Penniston decided that he was, uh, he was going to touch this thing, <laughs> uh, this otherworldly craft. And despite it being freezing outside, uh, since, you know, it's late December in England and, uh, he remembered the craft itself being warm to the touch. And as he moved his hand across the craft, he felt and saw what looked like 
to be these raised etchings on one area of the craft's hull. And it had this kind of sandpaper-like texture in this three-inch tall by three-foot-wide area that was on just on this one side of the craft. And he reported that they almost appeared to resemble like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they weren't. Uh, at least that's the closest thing he could compare it to. And when he touched these odd symbols, he, he said that everything became this brilliant white light color. <laughs> uh, and in that moment, Peniston said he couldn't see or hear anything. It was just this bright white all around him. Uh, he thought that the craft in that moment might explode. So he recoiled and backed away from this object and kind of took a defensive position, probably trying to shield his, his face. Uh, but instead of exploding this object, whatever, whatever it was started rising up into the air and then went into the forest and vanished. And in the reports, it was said that nearby farm animals could be heard going into this loud frenzy, like something was was shaking them up. And the last thing that Peniston remembered uh, from this craft was its its blue, red, and and white and yellow lights illuminating the forest below as it as it disappeared from view. Now, Peniston would later note that he didn't physically observe occupants in this craft, but he had this gut feeling that somehow there was something alive and intelligent to it. After the encounter, he wrote a lot of notes in his logbook, and one excerpt stated that in that moment, I knew this craft's technology was beyond what we could engineer. Peniston and Burroughs then returned to the base and uh, they were debriefed and the debriefing essentially were the superior officers telling them to forget they ever saw anything. And interestingly, during that time, uh, which was now around 4 a.m., a, a bright object was actually witnessed by other personnel at the back gate of the base. Uh, but whether or not it was the same craft uh, isn't clear. And then at that point, local police were called in to investigate uh, in these early morning hours. And uh, they also came back again around 1030 the next day in the morning. Uh, but more on that a little later. So Peniston and Burroughs are sitting there. They've got superior officers telling them to forget what they saw, never say anything, uh, getting threatened. <laughs> and naturally, if you know what you saw, you're probably going to suspect there's some kind of cover up afoot. Uh, so the next day, uh, the pair discreetly returned to the site of the encounter to investigate to see if there were signs of anything that could tell them their experience was real and that it happened. And to their surprise, when they arrived, they apparently found these three depressions 
in the ground in a very specific formation exactly where the craft was in this clearing in the Rendlesham Forest. Penniston apparently also had access to some casting material and wound up making plaster casts of these impressions. And then if this wasn't a weird scenario already, uh, things took a turn for the bizarre. Later, when Penniston returned to his room on the base, he claimed that these strange visions of ones and zeros started to rush into his mind. This vision or force, whatever it was, apparently compelled him to write these numbers down in the order he would receive them in his head. And not too long into the process of writing down all these ones and zeros, he realized that this might be binary code, but this apparent otherworldly message wouldn't be decoded for some time until it was given to a man named Joe Luciano, uh, who was an expert in the binary language. And uh, what was in this message raises a lot of questions, if it's legit. Uh, so check this out. The message reads, Exploration of Humanity. 6668100 continuous for planetary advancement now that, that's pretty interesting right uh the message then listed a series of geographical coordinates that all pointed towards significant historical areas and monuments all around the planet uh like the pyramids on the giza plateau in egypt the Nazca Lines of Peru, the Temple of Apollo in Greece, Tai Shanku in China, uh, Sedona, Arizona, and even an area in the ocean just off the western coast of Ireland, which some legends say was the location of a mythical island called High Brazil. Uh, kind of like an Atlantis-type lost civilization that sunk into the sea. Another part of the message also stated eyes of your eyes, and some take that to mean uh, that there's a potential time travel element to this, uh, and some think that the 8100, the 8100 in the first part of the message is indicative of an origin year, and that it may point to this craft not being from extraterrestrials, but instead uh, time-traveling humans from 6,000 years into our future. Now, now that is uh, a very interesting theory. Uh, it's super interesting <laughs> because the default idea here is that, you know, you see a UFO, it's always aliens. But at the same time, people have said if time travel is real, where are all the time travelers? You know, perhaps this this case is evidence of such technology. I mean, there's tons of theories as to what the UFO phenomena is, uh, what this intelligence is, what it's doing. Uh, you know, seems like it's been here for a long time and will continue to be. Are they aliens from another planet? Are the ultra terrestrials 
Are they interdimensional beings, uh, a breakaway civilization? Are they uh, the devs for the game of life simulation? <laughs> or are they us from the future? Or maybe some kind of combination of all of these things. Peniston had been on the receiving end of a lot of skepticism for his outlandish claims in all of this, but several of his colleagues have vouched for him and his reliability regarding his experience. So there's something to be said for that. Now, let's get into the Halt memo and... Uh, Charles Halt's infamous uh, recording and encounter. So obviously this incident didn't end with Peniston, Burroughs, and Cabin Sag's encounter with the craft. Uh, it turns out the following day, Colonel Charles Halt, uh, I believe he was a lieutenant colonel at the time, he was the deputy base commander of the joint RAF Woodbridge and Bentwater's uh, Air Force bases. And he arrived there and it was found that the following day after this, this uh, close encounter, there were apparently was a, this significant increase in the background radiation all around the base. And teams were sent out to investigate to see what was going on. And the teams that went out found increased radiation on trees within the Rendlesham forest uh, that were on the sides of the trees that were facing in the direction where this UFO had landed, which is pretty interesting. And a couple of days had passed and now it's December 28th. And word had got out on the base that uh, the UFO seemed to have returned. And Halt had higher ranking officers with him uh, during his, his time at the base. And he was evidently ordered to discreetly investigate whatever this object was that was visiting out in the forest. Uh, however, it would seem his superiors asked him to go about this investigation in a way to kind of uh, disprove and, and debunk um, the previous sighting by Peniston and Burroughs and just kind of delegitimize the whole thing uh, because I would uh, wager that they didn't want uh, the, a story about a UFO somehow leaking and getting out, uh, especially during the height of uh, the Cold War. Now, after receiving his orders, Halt took a team out into the forest uh, to see what was going on. And it was then that this glowing red object appeared within view in the forest, and it was apparently moving rather quickly. And it was this moment that Colonel Halt hit record on the tape recorder that he had with him. And I'm going to just play a little bit of that recording uh, for you all to listen here. So check this out. 
some type of strange flashing red light ahead. That's yellow. I saw a yellow tinge in it, too. Weird. It, it, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's right on half that. Yellow. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shining off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. So this recording, it's one of those pieces of evidence that since the first time I ever listened to it, it's made me think that whatever happened on these nights back in December of 1980, it was was legit. (laughs) And the way that uh, Colonel Halt and the other personnel are speaking with anxiety and fear, uh, curiosity too, for sure. Um, and these are military officers. Uh, it just seems authentic to me. And the play-by-play of what's happening from taking readings of the radiation levels in the area and this blinking red-yellow mystery light uh, that just seems completely alien to them. And then it starts moving through the forest and heading towards Halt and his team. And then this thing has pieces uh, that they describe as shooting off or falling off of it um, before it shoots up into the sky and splits into these five white objects and then they all zip off and disappear. It's just this totally bananas situation. And during this field investigation, Halt and his team also noted that uh, they saw this other flashing light to the east across a nearby field that was in line with a local farmhouse, which was similar to what some people uh, said that they saw two nights prior on the 26th of December. And if this series of bizarre events wasn't enough already, Halt and his team observed these three star-like objects appear in the sky. You know, they just looked like these bright points of light way high up. 
And the brightest of this trio would periodically shoot some kind of beam down to the ground, uh, like literally only a few feet directly in front of them. It's like, uh, hey, guys up there, you're cutting cutting it a little close down here. (laughs) Um, And the brightest craft was observed for close to three hours that evening. And during this observation, this craft advanced towards the Woodbridge Air Base where some bunkers were. Uh, And this UFO then systematically fired beams into each of these bunkers throughout the base. Uh, At least that's what was reported. Now, what's really interesting is that in the tape recording, Halt states that he has confirmation from Bentwaters uh, that the radar operators over there said that they had observed some object pass through their radar screens within two to three seconds. And the scope that uh, the radar covers is this pretty wide area, uh, several, several miles. And this means that whatever this object was, was flying at probably thousands of miles an hour. And then the object came back into view on the radar scopes and stopped over the Bentwaters base water tower. And then they saw it move towards the forest where Halt and his team were. So there's all sorts of activity happening and it's all being documented. There's this team out in the forest checking checking out the red blinking light object. There's objects in the sky, objects being uh, seen on radar. It's just, uh, it's a party. (laughs) Now, Halt never confirmed this due to an oath of secrecy, no doubt, but other reports and sources from different researchers over the years um, assert that the RAF Woodbridge and, and Bentwaters sites uh, housed nuclear weapons uh, in secret at the time. And there's a lot of reports of military installations that have uh, nuclear weapons and have had UFOs show up and somehow uh, they're able to remotely mess with things at the base, uh, like deactivating missiles or activating them only to shut them off at the last second, (laughs) Uh, playing some kind of game of of chicken, I guess, intergalactic chicken. And, uh, you know, it's like they're saying, hey, uh, humans, you shouldn't be messing with this technology. And, oh, hey, also, we can control it and there's nothing you can do to stop us. So it's, yeah, it's a a pretty interesting um, phenomenon surrounding that uh, terrifying but interesting as well now after this incident one of the uh, air force's top ranking generals in europe at the time general gabriel was reported to have visited raf bentwaters and woodbridge and allegedly when he arrived there he came into possession and removed several items of interest pertaining to the investigation of the UFO or series of UFOs really that visited these bases between December 26th and December 28th. 
And despite the MOD and military officials downplaying this event, it seems like if some of the top brass of the the Air Force got involved, something important enough must have happened to get them involved and uh, potentially be part of some kind of larger cover-up operation. Now, Halt's memorandum, widely known now as the Halt Memo, is the reason why we know about this incident. And although Halt sent the memo to the UK's Ministry of Defense, it was basically dismissed. But as uh, fate would have it, in 1983, a few years after this event, the memo would enter the public domain via a United States Freedom of Information Act request where it would land into the hands of UFO researchers. And uh, the uh, the British tabloid uh, paper, News of the World, uh, not that it lands credibility to it, but it's just kind of a funny little factoid. Uh, they published a headline uh, after... You know, this all this documentation came out that said uh, UFO lands in Suffolk and that's official. <laughs> now, uh, despite uh, this memo entering into the public's hands, it was clear that some details of this incident were omitted and uh, a copy of Halt's tape recording during his investigation uh, wasn't even released until a year later in 1984. Um and it was actually released by a, uh, a Colonel Sam Morgan, who actually assumed command of the base after uh, Colonel Ted Conrad had uh, had no longer uh, been in charge of it. So fast forward decades later, <laughs> we're just going to do a time jump here uh, to uh, 2010. And there's some new revelations about this case from the now retired Air Force colonel uh, regarding Penniston and Burroughs. In a documentary about the Rendlesham Forest incident by former police detective Gary Heseltine and his wife Lynn, Gary interviewed Charles Halt. And during their discussion about what had happened, on those nights back in 1980, uh, Halt made an admission, which apparently he had never uttered before, that Penniston and Burroughs were unaccounted for on December 26 for uh, some time, and Halt had suspected that uh, the two might have actually been abducted by the craft. And that same year, Halt had signed a notarized affidavit, which seemed to confirm and summarize the events that took place at RAF Woodbridge and Bentwaters between December 26 and 28, 1980. And it was his opinion, based on his personal experiences, that what he and other servicemen encountered was extraterrestrial in nature and that he felt certain forces within the United States and the United Kingdom military and governments made moves to cover it up quickly. 
Uh, however, there are some who have refuted Halt's claims, of course, uh, such as his former uh, superior officer, uh, Ted Codrad, who he was the base commander at uh, Woodbridge at the time, and Halt was the deputy. So he was kind of like second, second in command. And Conrad had asserted that nobody saw anything resembling what Halt had claimed. Uh, no landed UFO, no strange lights in the forests or the skies, nothing shooting beams down on the ground. Uh, he even took shots at uh, Penniston's story about touching the UFO and pretty much just said it was a hull, all made up. It was all a hoax. Um, interestingly, though, back in 1983, uh, Ted Conrad did an interview with Omni magazine, which was a, uh, a prominent UFO magazine at the time. And in the interview, Conrad recalled the event at the base and was quoted as talking about uh, two servicemen. And I'm guessing he was probably referring to Penniston and Burroughs, uh, who had tracked an object that descended into the Rendlesham forest and wound up finding this large craft out there that appeared to be mounted on some kind of tripod-like apparatus. And this craft, uh, Conrad said, was also adorned with a series of bright blue and red lights on it, which is basically just like uh, the description of of what Penniston and Burroughs had described this craft, <laughs> like what it looked like some like many years later. So, you know, there is a question of you know, the legitimacy of all of it, if, you know, is Penniston uh, telling the truth about what what he experienced with touching the UFO and, and what it looked like, or was he basing it on what Conrad had said and was Conrad just trying to get some notoriety and was he being hyperbolic about the whole thing? It's, uh, it's a good question, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's... Um, that's that's the story of Rendlesham, and it's it's a very uh, it's a complex case, and there's a lot a lot of details in it, um, and I'm sure there's there's many other minor details that I, I've left out, but you know we're <laughs> an hour to an hour and a half long podcast, we can't fit everything in, but um, for now I I, I I do want to get into you know, some of the skepticism regarding this case. But right now we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back in, in just a few moments. And now we're on a quick break for a Patreon member shout out. If you have just started listening to the show and you didn't know, Strangeology is on Patreon. If you like the show and my art and want to help out, you can sign up today to support what I do here. There's some awesome benefits like early access to content. There's merch discounts, exclusive merch, VIP room access to my Discord server, and you also get access to Strangeology Beyond, which is my Patreon members only episode extension where sometimes I will go an extra 30 to 45 minutes or even more uh, at the end of each episode uh, and uh, we go over 
a lot more Fordian topics and, and uh, just have a lot of fun. So I have a really awesome and growing group of members who help make Strangeology possible. And uh, if you'd like to help support this show, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Strangeology and check everything out. You might find something you like. Shout out to Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Marine Asmat, Gail Frederick, William Malcomese, Maya Shanton, Adam Flynn, Connor Boyle, Ryan Holiday, and Cassie Maratson. So thank you all so much. And if you do sign up, just know it helps me out a ton and I'm super grateful for it. All right, now let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back. So was the Rendlesham Forest incident truly one of the most well-documented close encounters with a UFO that we know of? Well, a lot of people believe it just might be, but there's also those who disagree and point to some pretty mundane things that could explain what happened on those nights back in 1980. So let's take a look and see what we can find. In the late 90s, a Scottish researcher named James Easton managed to get his hands on some original witness statements from December 26th, particularly that of Ed Cavinsag. He was less important to the story um, than Penniston and Burroughs uh, since he was sent back to the base and he didn't witness this alleged UFO up close and personal. Uh, But his statements do call some things into question. Cabinsag stated that they thought that the lights they were investigating were actually coming from beyond the Rendlesham Forest uh, as no lights were visible within the forest as they trekked through it. Uh, you, you can see how that's probably, you know, a little bit problematic to the the narrative of uh, Penniston uh, with his close encounter. Uh, they did notice, however, a uh, glowing kind of beacon of light. But as they got closer to it, they realized that it was just a farmhouse off in the distance. And eventually the trio of servicemen got to this vantage point where they could definitively tell that the light source was some ways off, uh, somewhere off in the distance. And at that point, apparently Burroughs was quoted as saying they could see a beacon going around and they tried to go towards it for a good two miles. And once they got close enough, they realized that it was just a lighthouse, uh, the Orford Ness lighthouse, uh, to be exact, which this is the lighthouse that most skeptics point to as being the explanation for this whole thing. You've got a rotating light uh, that could look like uh, a blinking reddish yellow light if uh, you know it's late at night and there's certain atmospheric conditions. You know, it could be uh, confusing for, 
you know, people who are out there that think they're seeing something otherworldly, but uh, perhaps it's just a lighthouse beacon. <laughs> uh, but there are some holes in that argument, um, such as uh, one of the hypersonic object that was spotted on uh, radar uh, at the the joint Air Force bases uh, of Woodbridge and Bentwaters, or uh, the supposed increased radiation levels that were detected in the Rendlesham Forest and around the bases. Uh, impressions left in the ground that uh, at the supposed landing site that were observed and cast, uh, or even a glowing mystery object, or even series of objects in the sky shooting down beams of light. So there's there's a lot more going on than just, you know, a potential misidentification of a lighthouse beacon. All right, now let's go over what uh, the police reports said from when they were called onto the base on December 26. Earlier, I had mentioned that on this night, the police were called to investigate, and apparently they found nothing unusual going on at these bases and that the only visible lights in the area that morning were from the Orford Ness Lighthouse. And when they went to the site where the UFO supposedly landed, they attributed the indentations on the ground as simply being animal tracks. And later on in 1999, one of the constables who was present during this investigation uh, was quoted as saying he was convinced that nothing out of the ordinary had happened and noted that the area was regularly swept by uh, the powerful light beacon um, from a uh, landing beacon at the RAF Bentwaters and Woodbridge bases, as well as the Orford Ness Lighthouse. And this constable went on further to say in certain weather conditions that the light beams could be very pronounced and cause strange-looking visual effects. And beyond that, the MOD also never took this case seriously. Although if there is a cover-up, you know, <laughs> that could just be, you know, not wanting to shine any light on the situation. So what happened? What what What's going on here? Was this just a hoax, uh, a misidentification, or was there a cover-up after all? There's a few theories as to what happened. Uh, first up is one where a former U.S. security police officer named Kevin Conda claimed responsibility for creating strange-looking lights in the Rendlesham Forest by using these modified lights on his police vehicle, and he was driving around in the woods as this kind of prank, but... Nobody could find evidence to substantiate his claim, and even if you know he did, they couldn't prove that it happened between the dates of December 26th and December 28th in 1980. So that's kind of a little bit of a dead end. Uh, some thought that these lights were uh, <clears throat> from a downed Soviet spy satellite, but like the previous theory, this one also doesn't really have any solid evidence to back it up. Then there was this local forestry worker named uh, Vince Thurkettle, 
And he was in the area during the incident at the time. And somehow he had heard that something landed in the Rendlesham forest and he claims he went to go investigate, but, uh, he was heartbroken when he found out that it was nothing. And he, he found the supposed landing site and all he saw were these three, uh, rabbit scrapes on the forest floor in the rough formation as a triangle. So that explanation could potentially, you know, be what uh, Penniston uh, thought were uh, indentations from landing gear from the craft that he supposedly encountered. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of a pretty mundane explanation. It, it, it could be that's what it was, or who knows if this guy was even in the same area. And most skeptics seem to accept a multifaceted explanation behind this incident. First off, the very first sighting at these bases on December 26, where servicemen reported seeing a light descending into the forest, and this happened at the same time that reports of a fireball or a meteor were happening and being reported all over southern and 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 southeastern england and you know that kind of thing is commonly um cited as uh, misidentifications for ufos but at the same time if several servicemen saw something descending in this controlled and intelligent manner um to a very small and localized forest next to a, a military installation. I'm going to say it's probably not a meteor. I mean, I've seen plenty of fireball meteors in my lifetime. Uh, usually it's a very quick instance. They zip past over the sky and burn out within a few seconds at, at most. And the light doesn't, you know, slowly descend into the trees or linger around for a while. There was one time when I was a kid and I was actually, uh, I had this, uh, telescope when I was growing up and I was setting it up outside, uh, and I was going to go look at the moon and I was like coming back outside with a couple of the lenses that I had. And the second I walked out onto the back deck of the house I grew up at, uh, this, big fireball just passed right over the house. And that's probably the biggest, uh, meteor I've ever seen <laughs> in my life, but it just kind of like vaporized, I guess is the best way you could describe it within just like two seconds. It was just gone. Um, but clearly it was just, you know, a meteor, probably the size of, uh, a pea or something like that burning up overhead, but it looked really big in the sky. It was kind of crazy. Um, <clears throat> so back to uh, a little bit of a tangent there, but, uh, so yeah, uh, meteors don't descend, uh, slowly down into trees and then linger around on the ground for a while. Um, and although there were markings on the ground in the spot where Penniston claimed the UFO landed, uh, you know, these, these marks were dismissed by police and this other guy, Vince Thurkettle, uh, as being the result of uh, local wildlife like rabbits digging holes. And the other piece of the puzzle is the flashing light, which was seen in the same direction, apparently, as the Orford Nest Lighthouse. 
and during Halt's investigation on the 28th, he noted seeing a bright light off in the distance in the general direction of the lighthouse as well, which coincidentally also had the same kind of flash rate. Uh, so, you know, that very well could be what they were seeing part partially, uh, but I, it seems like there's still some unexplained things about lights coming in in the sky and, you know, dropping down uh, from 90,000 feet in, in altitude in mere seconds or zipping by a radar screen that cover covers several miles um, and coming back and just stopping. It's, I feel like there's something else going on here, but you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, explanations as we can see here that, that do kind of, you know, make this sound like it probably wasn't anything, but again, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that, that nothing happened. Uh, the skeptic Brian Dunning, who I've mentioned many times before on this show, he believes that the Rendlesham Forest incident was just a way for those telling their story to get TV deals and make money. And perhaps that's the case, uh, but despite this whole thing being somewhat explainable in certain instances, there is still a chance that something unknown, something secret went down back in that forest in 1980. And then on the other hand, you have investigators like the former ministry of defense, uh, member Nick, Nick Pope, who had spent a significant amount of time looking into the Rendlesham forest incident and speaking with most of the key witnesses that were there during this event. And uh, Nick Pope has noted that it seemed that during the initial investigations, the UK was displeased that the United States had removed some evidence on this case and didn't notify the MOD. Uh, but, uh, you know, they weren't sure... He wasn't sure if there was a deliberate attempt to cover something up, but something that that sounded a little bit suspect. And Nick Pope is of the opinion that there are really only two possibilities of what happened on those nights. Number one, there was an intrusion into UK airspace and a landing by an unidentified craft in the Rendlesham Forest or... Number two, the deputy commander of a then operational and potentially nuclear armed U.S. Air Force base in England and several of his enlisted servicemen were hallucinating the whole thing or simply lying. that's where I'm going to leave this one today, everyone. I know there's a lot more details and perhaps I can revisit this story uh, at some point in the future, but <laughs> we're an hour and a half in and uh, it's, it's pretty long here. Um, but I love this story and it's one of my favorite UFO cases. So I'm really stoked to have finally done an episode about it. Uh, I can definitely see how there are totally rational explanations behind this event, but at the same time, there's a lot of enigmatic stuff surrounding it. 
there was confirmed radar contact with something traveling far in excess of the speed of anything we have even today, 41 years later. And you have several servicemen and officers who witnessed something in the Rendlesham Forest. Um, and the fact that the general of the United States Air Force uh, in Europe uh, happened to show up after this event and then there's a bunch of missing evidence. I mean, come on, you got to at least scratch your head on that one. But, you know, maybe nothing happened. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, thank you all for checking out the first episode of uh, season two of the Strangeology podcast. I've got a lot of ground to cover this season, a lot of interviews I've got to set up and book with people. Uh, so it's going to be a wild ride ahead and uh, moving into 2022. So thank you for uh, all joining me on this journey. And thanks for just coming back. I, I know it was a long break between the end of October and now um, over two months later. <laughs> my apologies, but it wasn't my attention. But with everything going on from Crypticon to, uh, you know, the holidays, uh, the sales rush with my my merch shop, uh, birthdays, family stuff. And, and uh, it's it's wild trying to balance all that stuff uh, solo. So maybe maybe it's time to get a co-host. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and in some final updates, uh, the show is quickly approaching 10,000 downloads, which is awesome. I just checked um, as I was recording this episode um, and it's it's quickly approaching that. And I think uh, two to three months ago, I mentioned uh, some kind of goal about hoping to reach that number before the end of the year. So, hey, we're 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 close. We're, we're one year uh, into doing the podcast, uh, 10,000 downloads, just about not too shabby at all. Uh, so thank you again, everyone, for downloading and sharing my show and and really liking what I'm doing with Strangeology. This is a lot of fun. It's it's uh, kind of living the dream and I'm, I'm having a blast here. And thanks again to all of my Patreon members for supporting me. It's amazing to see where Strangeology came from uh with with meager beginnings and and where it's going i couldn't have uh imagined that uh this is you know how this would all grow and, and pan out so it's it's really awesome and um yeah it's it's great so uh, and a couple final things here. Don't forget to follow me over on all of my social media accounts. Uh, Instagram is the the main the main base of operations. Uh, I'm also on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, please sign up for my email list over on Strangeology.com. Uh, I promise I don't uh, spam anybody. It's pretty much just for uh, big updates and uh, if if. Occasionally, I'll, I'll send out a, uh, a coupon code or something like that um, for my for my shop. Uh, so definitely don't want to miss out on that if you if you dig my artwork and want to buy some merch and support me that way. Uh, and if you ever want to leave me feedback or, or just send a nice message, you know you can email me as well. Uh, you can find the the contact info on my website or just hit me up in my DMs on Instagram. I respond most of the time, <laughs> and. Uh, 
Also, another reminder, uh, being the new season, uh, my hotline for calling in with your stories is always open. The number is uh, 802-448-0612. If you have a story about a cryptid encounter, UFO sighting, dealings with ghosts, poltergeists, uh, give me a call. I'd love to hear your stories. And uh, my hope is to uh, do do a new episode of listener uh, stories and, and feature feature them for a future episode, uh, you know, or if not, that's cool, too. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, that's it for now. And uh, stay tuned for some more really awesome stuff to come for 2022. And for my Patreon members, stick around after the, the quick break I'm going to take here. I'm going to dig into the ancient mystery and legends of high brazil which is uh one of the supposed coordinates that jim peniston received in that binary code that was beamed into his brain after he touched the ufo in the rendlesham forest so as i always say take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange and also since it's the end of the year have a a very happy new year and uh stay safe out there everyone Patreon members, if this is your first time checking out Strangeology Beyond, my extra segment just for all of you. <laughs> so I wanted to look into the story and the legend.